this time of testing, will we do our duty? Will we do what we must? The January 6th investigation. Many people remain unsettled about the economy, and we all know why. Inflation ripples across the economy. Veterans Day 2021. I'm Paul Brandis. You're listening to West Wing Reports. It's Friday, November 12th. It has been one year now since Joe Biden was elected president. That means it has also been one year since Donald Trump began spreading what has since become known as, quote, the big lie. He and his supporters don't see it that way, of course, but Republican state officials, Republican-appointed judges all the way up to the Supreme Court, which is dominated by conservatives, including three justices handpicked by Trump, disagree with him. They've rejected claim after claim, dozens of claims, in fact, that the election was tainted. It was not tainted, all those Republicans say. Trump, for his part, maintains that he did nothing wrong, and yet this week has gone to court to try and stop federal investigators from accessing his White House records relating to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Trump has claimed executive privilege, though he's no longer an executive, but federal judge Tanya Chutkin of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia shot that down, saying, quote, presidents are not kings and plaintiff is not president. He retains the right, she said, to assert that his records are privileged, but the incumbent president is not constitutionally obligated to honor that assertion. Translation, President Biden does not have to protect Trump's records here, and he won't. But Trump's lawyers have won a delay in releasing those records, and that's where things stand right now. Meantime, the bipartisan commission that's investigating the January 6th attack wants Trump's records so they could determine what he was up to on January the 6th. Liz Cheney, a Republican from Wyoming, is on that commission. And the question for every one of us, not just for those of us who are elected, but for every one of us, is this. In this time of testing, will we do our duty? Will we do what we must? Will we defend our Constitution? Will we stand for truth? Will we put duty to our oath above partisan politics? Or will we look away from the danger, ignore the threat, embrace the lies, and enable the liar? There's no gray area when it comes to that question, when it comes to this moment. There's no middle ground. Our founders provided that every elected official would swear an oath. And it's not an oath to a party. It's not an oath to an individual. It's a solemn oath that we swear before God to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. The founders established this oath because they knew the danger of faction. They knew that the survival of this great American experiment The survival of our republic depended upon public servants of goodwill doing their duty to the Constitution, putting loyalty to the nation and its founding ideals above self-interest. This is no small thing. In fact, it is everything. Today, too many political leaders seem to have forgotten the sacred nature of that oath. 
at precisely this moment when it matters most. We're confronting threats globally that are in many ways unparalleled. We've watched in the last week as the Chinese have tested a hypersonic weapon. We've seen reports come out in just the last few days that they may have 1,000 nuclear weapons by 2030. We're seeing a North Korea on the march, Iran on the march, Russia on the march, nations around the world testing America. At precisely this moment, we need to make sure that we are unified. We need to ensure that as a nation, we are working together to fight to preserve our freedom, to fight to preserve those ideals. And at this moment, when it matters most, we are also confronting a domestic threat that we've never faced before. A former president who's attempting to unravel the foundations of our constitutional republic, aided by political leaders who have made themselves willing hostages to this dangerous and irrational man. Just last night, former President Trump was invited by House Republican leaders to be the keynote speaker at our annual large fundraising dinner. At the dinner, he reportedly said once again that the insurrection was on November 3rd and that the events of January 6th, when a violent mob invaded the Capitol in an effort to overturn the will of the American people and stop the constitutional process of the counting of electoral votes, that those events were a protest, that they were justified. Political leaders who sit silent in the face of these false and dangerous claims are aiding a former president who is at war with the rule of law and the Constitution. A former president who's at war with the rule of law and the Constitution, an extraordinary statement from Wyoming's Liz Cheney. We'll have a bit more on this later. Inflation has been low for a very long time, but that's changing, at least for now. The Labor Department says the Consumer Price Index has risen 6.2% over the past year. That's the biggest gain in three decades. That's a problem, obviously, unless your wages are going up faster than that, you're losing ground. This is the kind of thing that immediately becomes a partisan issue. President Biden admits it's a problem. He was in Baltimore this week. Everything from a gallon of gas to a loaf of bread costs more, and it's worrisome, even though wages are going up. We still face challenges, and we have to tackle them. We have to tackle them head on. So what's happening here? Well, inflation is up around the world, not just here. And the president thinks the pandemic and the resulting supply chain slowdown is a big reason why prices are up. Goods are scarce. There's a huge shortage of truck drivers to deliver things to market, for example. And when demand exceeds supply, well, prices rise. That's Econ 101. But Republicans aren't buying that. They say Biden's big spending is driving prices up. Here's Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. The Biden administration and many of our colleagues seem to think the cure for this inflation hangover is the hair of the dog. They're trying to exploit the economic anxiety they've created by pitching yet another multi-trillion dollar socialist spending spree. They want to try to inflate their way out of inflation. 
Now, whatever the reason, inflation is a nasty economic problem, and that means for the party in power, it's a political problem, too. Exactly the kind of thing that can nail Biden and Democrats in next year's midterm elections. The ancient sound of taps playing at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of the year, Veterans Day. There are 155 national cemeteries in 42 states and Puerto Rico. The most prominent is Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia, just over the Potomac from Washington. Arlington is always a special place, a hallowed place. This year it marked the 100th anniversary of the Tomb of the Unknowns. To those citizen warriors, past and present, who have worn the uniform and service of our country, thank you for your service. Other news this week. Some people say we can't afford to fight climate change, but what's the cost of not fighting it? A survey of hundreds of municipalities around the Great Lakes says damage from climate change is costing about $400 million a year. That's just for the Great Lakes. What's in your wallet? Maybe not as much. It seems debt is on the rise again. The Federal Reserve says Americans are spending freely, perhaps too freely. Household debt is at a record $15.25 trillion. And I'll bet you've seen videos of airline passengers behaving badly. Well, the Federal Aviation Administration is making them pay. Ten particularly violent passengers have been hit with nearly a quarter million dollars in new fines for shouting, spitting, screaming, shoving, and throwing punches on board commercial flights. There's also talk of adding these jerks to the no-fly list. More on the investigation into the January 6th attack on your capital in just a moment. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls-Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel. Welcome back. You're listening to West Wing Reports. And earlier we were talking about the January 6th attack on the Capitol. This was really, to quote Franklin D. Roosevelt, a day that will live in infamy. A bipartisan investigation into this is underway, and a big part of that involves determining the actions that tragic, fatal day of then-President Trump. 
The office of the presidency, meantime, has come under scrutiny like never before. A new book with chapters by various scholars provides some really interesting historical and constitutional context. It's called The Presidency Facing Constitutional Crossroads, published by the University of Virginia's Miller Center. One of its editors is Barbara Perry. She tells me that the rise of Donald Trump is really not all that surprising. We've always had demagogues in this country. After all, Huey Long, for example, in the 1930s, Joseph McCarthy in the 1950s. But in Trump, one of these demagogues made it all the way to the top. Here's a part of our conversation. What explains the rise of the demagogue? Is it, uh, say, we can't say, well, it's all because of television and Facebook, because we just mentioned three people that kind of were demagogues before these things existed. So uh, what is behind the rise of people like that? So that's a great question, and, it, and we can pull it apart in, in many different ways. So I actually think one of your points, though, is correct, that we are, as a system and as a people now, more prone to demagoguery because of social media, 24-7 media. And, of course, social media is a misnomer. The media or the, a medium is supposed to be a mediating element between we're talking about government and the people between the government and the people. Now, the people via social media are the media. So there is no mediating uh, element between the governed and the government or between the president and the people. Also, we have universal suffrage now. So that means that the check on people, which the founders put in place, I'm not saying I agree with that. I agree with universal suffrage, but remember in the founding era, only white males with property could vote. And they still wanted an electoral college to check even that. So, so I do believe that what has happened in the most recent era has not only led us to the, more, the possibility of more demagogues, but as I pointed out earlier, Father Coughlin, Huey Long, and Joe McCarthy were not elected president. So something changed that allowed a, a candidate, uh, an unqu a patently unqualified candidate, to uh, win in, in 2016. And the irony is the very system of the Electoral College, which was meant to ban that kind of person from being elected, facilitated the election of that person. And the, the element of demagoguery goes back to ancient Greece and, and the, the demos, the people, uh, the city-state of Athens. Uh, the, the ancients worried, the ancient philosophers worried that if you do let people engage, especially in that system of direct democracy, where the people didn't have representatives, they were they were making the decisions themselves, much like a, a New England town meeting to this day. Uh, and so the fear on the part of the ancients was you could get somebody to rile the people up by telling them half-truths, ginning up divisions, and, and appealing to their base instincts. So I think as long as there's human nature, there will be the propensity to have people engage in demagoguery and some people follow them. But I think the, the part of also what, what causes this to rise, what causes the rise of a demagogue, look at the 1920s and 30s, look at the depression, 
the crisis that, and, and interestingly enough, in Huey Long and Father Coughlin, they represent two, two different opposite sides of the spectrum. Huey Long was a, a left-leaning populist and Father Coughlin was a right-wing fascist Catholic. Uh, and then of course the crisis of the Cold War leads I think to McCarthyism and his demagoguery. In the case of Trump, I think it's in, in part the, the 2007 and eight uh, situation involving the financial collapse and the rise of the Tea Party uh, in terms of Wall Street versus Main Street. And let's face it, Barack Obama, the backlash against Barack Obama and the uh, so-called Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, that you see the rise of the Tea Party there. It really gets ginned up uh, with 2007 and 2008. People blame globalism. Uh, people blame a, a sour economy for those in the working class and the middle class. And not only the backlash on the economy and what role the government should take, you know, this old saw about, oh, if government is involved in, in medical care, it's socialism, um, raising that old canard. But also I, I fear looking at the backlash against Barack Obama and his family, uh, a strain of racism that is in this country. And uh, I, I don't see it dissipating anytime soon. Donald Trump then ginned up all of that upset hatred, racism, sexism, uh, and, and upset and genuine upset on the part of people who felt like they were left behind in 2007 and eight, that the government bailed out the banks in Wall Street, but not Main Street. Uh, and that they may, and some of those people, by the way, did vote for Obama. They weren't racist, they voted for Obama, but you know, the hope and change that they hoped for from him, uh, they didn't feel the impact of it positively. So they voted for Donald Trump. Now, one part of that, uh, Barbara, that fascinating uh, response, one part of that is that perhaps to help guard against the rise of a demagogue uh, worming his way into the executive branch is that the executive branch is only one third of the government and there would be, uh, in theory at least, checks and balances from the other two branches of government, the legislature, of course, and the judiciary. Um, I'm not quite sure, though, that uh, in the case of Trump, that uh, that, that power was all uh, balanced uh, properly. In other words, you hear people talking about, well, he kind of uh, you know, eroded the guardrails of democracy and this kind of thing. Uh, these other two branches of government uh, are supposed to prevent that, but uh, I'm not quite sure whether they did. There's good news and bad news on that front. Uh, the good news was the guardrails held, the checks and balances, the separation of powers held on the election itself. So this lie, not just a half truth, but the lie that this was a stolen election, that there was massive fraud that switched and the election, both the popular vote and the electoral vote to Joe Biden uh, is, is utter nonsense. And the courts saw that for what it was. So the courts did stand strong. Obviously, while it's not a constitutional element of the three branches of government, but it is protected by the First Amendment, the media stood strong, despite the fact, and we haven't even mentioned in 24-7 media, the echo chambers of you know, left-wing media and right-wing media. Uh, but the, the mainstream media certainly stood strong uh, against the, the lies perpetrated by Trump and his minions. 
the bad news is, as you've pointed to, that I would say Congress did not <laughs> because uh, of the, the power desired by Republicans. Here's the thing about this that really confounds me, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, is that uh, in President Trump and his supporters, he was always talking about how he was a law and order president and how he loved the Constitution and the rule of law. And then, of course, on January the 6th, uh, the behavior that day, which was uh, you can debate the degree to which it was inspired by him, but it was, of course, anything uh, but respect for uh, the rule of law. And there are people who participated in the events of that day who, who perhaps don't quite see the, the, the disconnect there. And, and uh, that's what uh, baffles me, is it? Well, how can they do these kinds of things and still say, well, this is a law and order. Uh, he was a law and order president, and that's exactly what we need. I just don't get it. The people who engaged in that activity don't see it the way those of us who studied the Constitution and as you explained it, know that that was a most unconstitutional act was to have people attacking our very Congress in our hallowed halls of Congress, attempting to kill them, attempting to kill the leaders of Congress, and at the very least to stop the democratic process in its tracks. So talk about a crossroads that Donald Trump came to on January the 6th. He chose to go down an unconstitutional, undemocratic uh, roadway and then bring with him, at, by demagoguery, uh, all of those hundreds and maybe up to a thousand or so people uh, who rioted, revolted, and engaged in insurrection against the United States Constitution and Congress on January the 6th, 2021. So Trump supporters break the law, smash it in fact, while claiming they're law and order people. An incredible disconnect. But beyond that, and beyond how demagogues like Trump can rise to power, what if he runs in 2024? There are two huge questions about this. First, will our democracy hold? And second, what does history suggest about where we are right now? Barbara's answers on this are fascinating. I'm going to save that for next week. Now let's hear about another Evergreen podcast that I know you'll enjoy. Did you know virtually all vessels traveling in the U.S. have to be American built, owned, and crewed? That's thanks to the Jones Act, which is the bedrock of the American maritime industry. On the American Maritime Podcast, we cover the topics that matter most to the 650,000 men and women of American Maritime, while also being accessible for the average listener to learn about this industry. Every episode features a new guest, including congressional leaders, senior military officials, leading policy analysts, and other experts. Come aboard and listen wherever you get your podcasts or watch on the American Maritime Partnerships YouTube channel. Now let's open up the West Wing Report's archives and take a look at what made history this week in the past. Everybody knows that Abraham Lincoln was shot by John Wilkes Booth at Ford's Theater in 1865. But did you know they met face-to-face -face at that same theater a year and a half earlier? 
Lincoln was a regular theater-goer at Ford's, and he attended a play in November 1863 in which Booth was the star. The play was called The Marble Heart, and during the play, Booth, in character as the play's villain, twice wagged his finger in the president's face and threatened him. Mary Clay, a woman who was with the president that night, said, Mr. Lincoln, he looks as if he meant that for you. Lincoln responded, he sure does, doesn't he? By a majority of three and a half million votes, Franklin Delano Roosevelt is elected to serve for a fourth term. 1944, with America at war in Europe and the Pacific, Franklin D. Roosevelt won an unprecedented fourth term. His death the following April put Harry Truman, VP for just three weeks, into the White House. And 1962. But as I leave you, uh, I want you to know, just think how much you're going to be missing. You don't have Nixon to kick around anymore. Because, gentlemen, this is my last press conference. You won't have Nixon to kick around anymore, Richard Nixon said, announcing his political retirement after losing the California governor's race. Of course, that bitter performance was not his last press conference. Nixon would be elected president six years later, probably the most amazing political comeback in American history. I'd like to end each week with a quote, something you might find thoughtful. This week, it's from Dwight Eisenhower, our 34th president, also a five-star general, of course. The quote made just days before he left office in 1961 is rather appropriate for Veterans Day. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. So here's Eisenhower, the conservative Republican, the five-star general, the commander of D-Day, warning against the military and defense industry from having too much influence. It was harmful for society, he said, and harmful for our individual liberties. What's interesting here is that one of our other great generals who became president warned of the very same thing. His name, George Washington. Want more history? Check out my books on Amazon. I'll sign them for you, too. Just shoot me an email, pbrandis at evergreenpodcasts.com. And need a speaker for your event? I do that, too. Current events, economics, foreign policy, history. I connect the dots, and I'd love to hear from you. Special thanks to C-SPAN for the audio clips. West Wing Reports is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer, sound designer, and engineer, Noah Fouts. Executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm Paul Brandis in Washington. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.
Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.